Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, his was a remarkable 3,400-kilometer odyssey from his home on Lake Erie in Ontario to the Arctic, all prompted by a single moment when he spotted a peregrine falcon from his porch window and decided to follow its path. Taking just his backpack and canoe and setting off from home to make that three-month trip, Adam Schultz describes that journey in his new book called Where the Falcon Flies, and he's with me to tell me all about it. The revised Canada-Ukraine free trade deal, why it matters so much for Ukraine, and what he makes of the opposition conservatives voting against the deal over what they claim is language around carbon pricing. Is it worth abandoning Canada's common front on Ukraine over? We ask. A mystery respiratory illness is making dogs sick across several U.S. states in the past few months. It doesn't seem to be responding to any antibiotics and can be fatal in some cases. What do Canadian pet owners need to know? It hasn't come here yet, but we find out. First, the parents of a 12-year-old Prince George boy and police in that community are sounding the alarm about online predators after Carson Cleland took his own life after falling victim to a sextortion scam. Carol Todd, mother of Amanda Todd, joins me to talk about her ongoing fight to raise awareness about the dangers kids face online and what needs to be done to better protect them. We begin tonight with a sad, with a tragedy, really. I mean, I don't know if you saw this story yesterday. Mounties in Prince George, B.C., uh, have said said yesterday that a 12-year-old boy had died by suicide after being targeted in an online sextortion scheme. Par- parents of Carson Cleland are urging others to talk to their kids to make sure they don't also become victims of internet predators. Here's what Ryan Cleland and Nicholas Smith had to say to CKPG News yesterday, as included in part of this report from Global BC's Angela Jung. You had the heart of cold. No dry eyes as Nicola Smith thinks about her 12-year-old son, Carson. He was just—he was a happy all-around kid. <laughs> they say he was using Snapchat, but they had no idea he was being blackmailed until it was too late. Sending pictures um, and being threatened if he didn't give money or give cards. On October 12, Carson took his own life. The RCMP investigation revealed Carson was a victim of sextortion. Though the investigation continues, police have not identified a suspect. Now his parents are sharing their story, raising awareness of the dangerous predators targeting youth. I would want every kid to know that it's okay, don't be embarrassed, don't be scared, come out, talk to somebody, talk to a grown-up. That was part of Angela Jung's Global BC report last night with um, images and pictures from CKPG News. Uh, The voices you heard in there were Ryan Cleland and Nicholas Smith, the parents of Carson Cleland, a 12-year-old who took his own life after falling victim to a sextortion scheme. Now, law enforcement, we've talked about it on the show before, law enforcement have seen a huge increase in these kinds of cases and and it's boys, teenage boys uh, who are the largest increase in cases, around 90% of the ones they're seeing, according to the National Youth Tip Line for Online Sexual Crime, cybertip.ca. And teen boys between 14 and 17 are the most impacted by those crimes, especially, but this this boy, just 12, Carson, just 12 years old, uh, all the more 
all the more tragic and all the more shocking. The Canadian Centre for Child Protection's Associate Executive Director, Signe uh, Arneson, says it's social media companies, not parents, who bear the greatest responsibility for ensuring children are safe online. So we're, we're, we feel like we're screaming into an echo chamber. Governments need to act, and this has to change because how much younger do, do, do kids have to get to be devastatingly harmed online? And now we've got a 12-year-old deciding to end their life. There are no words to describe how uh, outrageous and just beyond upsetting this whole thing is. Indeed. And here we are 11 years after the death of 15-year-old Amanda Todd that raised so much awareness about, about these issues and predators online and the dangers and the importance of, of speaking out. Uh, of course, this week, sadly, this week would have been Amanda's 27th birthday. Um, a suspect was arrested and charged and convicted in her case uh, and sentenced to 13 years in jail. So far in the case of the 12-year-old boy in Prince George, police have no suspects. Uh, Amanda's mother, Carol Todd, who's been on the show before, is a longtime educator and advocate for internet safety, mental health, and online and fighting online exploitation, including through the Amanda Todd legacy. And she joins me now. Carol, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I thought of you, of course, because uh, you know I follow you on Facebook, and you were talking about Amanda's twenty seventh, right? And I was thinking back yeah. and just just how fast things go by, right? Oh, I know, I know. Yesterday was to be a day of reflection for me to talk, to think about uh, the memories that we had and your mind can't help, but go forward to what if you were alive today, what would we be doing? Right. And then, and then I heard the announcement, um, the RCMP release of the information about the 12 year old boy in Prince George. And it just broke my heart to, to know that there was, just another tragic story so close yeah, yeah and 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 here we are you know there, i know all the work that you've done over the years to try to raise awareness about this but it feels sometimes like you know the technology's change the the targeting changes in the way that it's done you know it's hard to keep up it's hard to keep up with with folks who would do bad do harm to people online well yeah and you know what i saw a statistic that said there's approximately 750,000 online predators or, or nefarious people online every day. And those people, a percentage of them are, I have to say, hunting down our kids in order to gain images or threaten them or, as in the case of boys, financial extortion. Um, they're, the, they're the bad criminals that we have to watch out for. And we also have to keep talking to our children. Um, I agree with Art Signe that, you know what, we're loading the parents up with information. Um, but the information continues to change. And now we have um, artificial intelligence, generative AI, deep fakes, um, all those creating child pornography, taking pictures, of a face from the internet and then putting some intimate images to the, to the face. It's, it's really, um, it's scary. It's a scary landscape out there for parents. And the question I always get is how do I learn more? How do I talk to my kids? Are my kids old enough to have this con to, to listen to this conversation? And it, for me, it's, there is never an age too young to talk about, personal safety, body safety, health science, those sexual health, 
those kinds of things because the more knowledge that we have and we give our kids, the the hopefully the less likely they are to become a victim. Yeah, it, uh, you must see so much of this because people come to you to talk about these things, but it strikes me that, that the sophistication of these, uh, of the way this is done has become so much more, um, I mean, it's, it's so impersonal now and it's so targeted and you just feel for, for someone, I mean, 12, you know, yes. you're not, you're, yeah. Um, you, yeah. I, I met, um, when I was in Detroit for a trial, I met a young girl and she was um, 15, 16 at the time, but she was predated on when she was eight. Right. And, and some of it was online because you think that some of the gaming apps for kids is 100% safe for them, but anywhere that there are, there's a chance for online communication um, for avatars and characters to talk to one another you don't know, it, it's like on how you go to a costume party and you don't really know who's behind that, in that costume, right? And, and yeah. it's even more scary when you go online because you don't know who's behind that screen. And so YouTube has a lot of great little short videos to watch about online predators. Um, I just watched one recently made from Ireland and it was sextortion from boys, a boy's perspective and there was a girl perspective. And the online predators had a, like a, it was like telemarketing, you know, tables and, and computers. And they just went into, they, these, these people just kept going into these websites and chat rooms and looked for young people to talk to. And it's almost like you've got 30 seconds and if they don't fall for it with a hello, then you move on to the next one. And I, I often say it's like a big goldfish pond, and our children are the goldfish. Uh, Carol, I mean, it's, it's you know, you've, you've been doing this for years now, trying to raise awareness and fight the fight. Uh, what do we do? Because it feels like here we are 11 years later, and, and something is, these things are still happening. And I get the sense that maybe social media companies aren't taking this, this responsibility uh, clearly enough. I mean, they must be able to figure out who's out there targeting people in this way. I, I don't know. What's the answer? Well, oftentimes these offenders, these predators, hide behind VPNs, right? It's right, when they make right. a mistake that the media companies can locate them. And so that's what makes it really challenging and really difficult. And also with these predator rings that are attacking our children in, in terms of oftentimes with the sextortion and, and with the boys, um, they're in other countries that makes it even more difficult to track them down. And if countries don't have a, a treaty of giving information, then that, it's, that's another roadblock, right? I was, we were lucky that the Netherlands and Canada um, had an agreement to share information so that was one of the reasons why Amanda's predator was, was caught and then Brian. trialed out here. So, yeah, that, that is, uh, but it, it's, it's all about, you know, when it comes to parents and caregivers, um, my best word of advice is to keep the communication open. And 
that can start, you know, talking with your kids at any age, um, having that trust, having sharing with your child that they can come to you with anything. Um, and, and vice versa, when your child comes to you, you listen and hopefully you don't react in a way that's going to um, promote that neg- negative feeling that for the child not to come to you again. Um, we have to monitor our kids' online activity to a point. Um, we have to teach them online safety uh, in the home and in school. Uh, I, I really feel that community, home, and school need to come together in order to to make this work. So we're sending the same message to our kids so that they know and that they know that they can trust the people in their community. Um, like just just recently, someone posted on Facebook that about, you might've seen it, um, mm-hmm. with Apple phones and AirDrop. And there's a new toggle button that um, you can put the phones really close together and they'll just share contact information. And so I went on my Facebook and I just told my followers that, you know, you can toggle that button off. It doesn't interfere with your ability to manually airdrop. But like those are things that our kids, we need to protect our kids with. And the tech companies make it so difficult, right? Things aren't defaulted like they should be defaulted. Kids are getting onto social media lying about their birth year. And, and so that makes it really hard for us as adults to um, reach, re, like have the, the good solutions when our kids are circumventing it. So having yeah. that communication, and I say with them, and we often talk at them, but we have to talk with the kids and have the kids come up with things that are, that are not good online. Having them maybe come up with some of the red flags right? And I'm teaching the kids that when there's a red flag and, and you give scenarios and, and practice them and talk about them, but when they get that horrible feeling in their stomach after, you know, someone's asking them to go talk from Snapchat to Discord or, you know, send a picture to me, include your face. If you talk about them and if it happens online, what our kids' brains will do is say, hey, I, I remember my parents talked to me about this. This is one of those red flags. And um, I need to, you know, block and stop talking to this person or whatever. So it's those kinds of things that we need to, to do more of. And in BC, we're lucky because our Ministry of Education has a BC digital literacy framework that, that all BC teachers um, have to follow. And it's broken down into grade levels. Right. And right. so um, yeah. we 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 are doing something actively. It's just not enough because things change so rapidly. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I, if we could all carry ourselves back to being that age, which is so very difficult, but to understand what it feels like to feel shame when you're that young, it's such a yes. power, powerfully awful emotion, right? And, and we don't even understand it as adults. How can you understand it as children? Carol, as always, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Let's talk about a story that caught my interest over the weekend because I've seen other people talking about it quite a bit. Hundreds of dogs in the U.S. 
are suffering reportedly from an unidentified respiratory sickness, one that does not respond to antibiotics and is being investigated in several states across the U.S. Now, Diane Swanson told NBC News recently about what happened with her and her golden retriever named Gus. It's just been a brutal six weeks. It's, you know, everything you do for him, nothing really works. The night before last, I thought for sure that we were going to lose him. It was it was just one of those nights all night long that he just could not catch his breath. He would just wake up just gasping. Wow. Uh, the symptoms of the illness uh, include coughing, sneezing, nasal or eye discharge and lethargy. Some of the cases of pneumonia progress quickly, making dogs very sick within 24 to 36 hours. Again, they don't know exactly what it is. And so far, at least, not responding because of that, not responding to antibiotics. A growing um, number of cases across the country are mainly tied to kennel stays, doggy daycare, dog parks. I mean, it makes sense, right? Basically places where dogs are either placed together or where they gather. So far, again, no cases here in Canada, but we wanted to see what the situation was, what pet owners here should know. So Danny Joffe is a veterinarian and vice president of medical operations for VCA Animal Hospitals, and he joins me now. Danny, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So when did this one begin cropping up? I mean, I, I seem to recall news, like sort of news articles about it maybe three three weeks ago or so, but is, is that about when it started hitting people's radar? Yeah, it was a little before that. It's been about two months that okay. people have been reporting unusual respiratory tract infections in dogs. Interestingly, in Canada, we do see upper respiratory infections, just like we do in humans. It's flu and cold season. Uh, and the same thing happens with dogs and, and cats to a lesser degree. So it's not uncommon for dogs to have mild infections, mild upper respiratory infections at this time of the year. Right. Although this one is from what I've read, and you'll know better than I do, but from this one uh, it appears different and scarier. Yeah, definitely scarier. Whether it's really something that we need to be frightened about, nobody knows. It seems, mo again, mostly in the U.S., that there's pockets of severe respiratory tract disease. And again, that can happen any time of year, but especially in the fall and winter is, is when we, when we uh, uh, tend to see it. Now, the reports, some of the reports out of the U.S. even include deaths. That can happen. Again, a dog that's compromised in some other way, just like a person that's ill, can get a bad respiratory infection. And that can be the, 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 the item that pushes them over, uh, that, that, that ends up causing their death. Luckily, in Canada, we haven't seen that. And even the numbers, and it's all over the map in the U.S., they haven't been tracking it like a, 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 like we would like them to do. Uh, it would be great if we knew this state had this many infections, this state had this many deaths. We just don't have that. It's more the, uh, the media that, that's reporting it than any of the laboratories that usually look into this information. Yeah, interesting. It has been pretty anecdotal. I think that was some of the reasons why when looking around for stories on it, it was sort of scattered between Oregon, uh, Colorado, New Hampshire, uh, but I hadn't seen it in many other places. But I guess all of it's sort of localized reporting. We don't know what it is, right? It is it is a respiratory thing, but where it, it is sort of being referred to as, as a mystery illness. Is that is that is that the right way of describing it for now? 
Yeah, again, that that could well be a misnomer, though. Yeah. Because, again, it sounds like a media term. It sounds like a media term. Yeah. <laughs> and dogs, we we what we we used to call it kennel cough. We used mm-hmm. to call that the disease when dogs have a coughing syndrome. Now they've changed the name to canine infectious respiratory disease complex (CIRDC), and that is an overarching. Uh, uh, group that includes all viruses and bacteria that cause upper respiratory infections in dogs. By far, viruses are the most common. Uh, We do see some bacteria that can cause it, but that's what we see at this time of year, sometimes in the summer as well, is mild to moderate respiratory tract infection and inflammation. Again, most often viral, occasionally bacterial, what we don't know is, is are these multiple pathogens causing this in the U.S., or is there a single pathogen that we haven't identified that's causing this in the U.S.? Most of the experts that I've spoken with think it is that it is the former, that it isn't something new. It's just a, it's just these other viruses and bacteria that are that are causing the problem. One of the issues is what we would like to do is we like to culture to find out what pathogen is there. Uh, the most common viral pathogens we see are parainfluenza. That's by far the most common one. There's canine, uh, th- there's, uh, canine uh, respiratory coronavirus. And when we hear coronavirus, we get worried. It's not, it's in that family of viruses, but it's nothing like COVID. And then Bordetella is the disease that causes classic kennel cough, and it's a bacterial infection. Typically, we see about 10% of infections being Bordetella, about 10% being canine respiratory coronavirus, and about 40% being parainfluenza. That can change from year to year. But what we like to do in a perfect world is if a pet becomes sick, we get them into the clinic and, and draw some samples. We use some uh, uh, a big Q-tip and put it in their nose or in their, in their eyelid, in their conjunctiva to try and find out what pathogens are there. From all the reading that I look at in the US, they're not doing that yet. Or they're waiting too long because once this goes on for a week or 10 days, there can be other pathogens that climb in and, and then we can culture them, but they might not be the originating pathogen. So right now there's not really good science out there. We I don't want to say there's not anything going on because definitely people have seen sick pets and, and there have been a few deaths reported, but we just don't know yet. Is this something new or is it just the the regular pathogens that we tend to see at this time of year, maybe in a more uh, serious uh, 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 outbreak. And and again, just like people, there's bad flu seasons and there's not so bad flu seasons. We could be just in one of the bad ones. And when I mentioned flu, influenza A is the, the influenza that most people get and get sick from. And dogs do get, um, uh, they do get uh, influenza. 
Luckily, not commonly in Canada, we don't see it very much at all. There's two pathogens that, that we do see. Uh, the original one that came out in about 2004 was uh, was H3N8. That was the that was the the one that we had there. And then in around 2015, we got H3N2, which is the more serious one. And there was a death in Calgary of a dog with uh with influenza a couple of months ago that dog had been in the US in Montana at a dog show and got sick at the dog show and unfortunately passed away when it got back to Calgary but it didn't infect any other dogs so really we've had very few influenza outbreaks in Canada they have seen more of them in the US but again if that's what was causing this there should be even more ill dogs. And so, again, we don't think it's influenza, but it has to be on the list of things that, that could be probabilities. So what advice to pet owners? I mean, as I was mentioning earlier, the the states that have been mentioned uh, in reporting on this are Oregon, New Hampshire, Colorado. Those are all places that are relatively within driving distance of our border. Uh, what do you tell pet owners who may be thinking of bring, going down there with their pet? Do they avoid that for now or is that uh, is that too much? Yeah, uh... Avoiding it might be uh, might be a little overdoing it, but certainly if you're going to those areas, I wouldn't take them to dog parks. I wouldn't put them in kennels. Some people, if they when they go on holiday, they'll leave their their dog in a kennel for the day while they're doing their visiting and and investigating. Uh, and so I, I would not have a dog in a in a kennel situation or at a dog park. One of the things that uh, in the U.S. that a lot of people are vaccinating for canine influenza, um, there are vaccines that we've had in Canada, but they're not available right now. A lot of people that are crossing the border would love to get a vaccine for canine influenza, but they're just not around. Right. Well, Danny, thank you so much. My pleasure. If you're like me, you pay a lot of attention to sort of news that people pay attention to, right? So uh, about a week and a half ago, a lot of people that I follow sort of in the epidemiological world started paying a lot of attention to something that was going on in China, particularly in kids' hospitals. Kids' hospitals were suddenly grappling with a surge in respiratory illnesses, including pneumonia. Now, the World Health Organization said last week that uh, a common winter infection or infections rather than any new pathogens are probably behind this spike in hospitalization. Um, but it, and it's the first winter in China without all those massive COVID-19 restrictions that they had in place right from the beginning or near the beginning of the pand- pandemic back in 2020. Still, when something happens like this in China, people tend to pay attention and want to know what's going on. The World Health Organization actually called out to Beijing very publicly, which is not something they used to do often at all. We wanted to know more about it. And someone who knows is Yan Zhang Huang. He's a senior fellow for Global Health, the Council for Foreign Relations and author of Toxic Politics. He's been with us before. Uh, Yan Zhang, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I suppose what we really want to do is try to make sense of what's happening because the images coming out of places such as Beijing are, are pretty alarming, sort of packed children's wards and so on. What's happening? What exactly is going on as far as you can tell? Uh, it's clearly we're not talking about just not one outbreak, right? It's like a co-epidemic, right? So it's like a, a multiple pathogen right, caused uh, outbreak in Beijing. And what do you see in Beijing? Actually, it's not just the confined in Beijing, it's like nationwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
phenomenon. But the, the, the hospitals are easily overwhelmed because this is the, the different kind of health system in China, right? When the, in the parents or their kids, you know, having, you know, like the flu-like uh, symptoms, their knee-jerk response, you send the kids to hospitals. You know, we're seeing, you know, something that uh, is not uncommon uh, in China. The kids are sick. The first reaction is to send the kids to hospital. Yeah, I used to live right beside, I used to work right beside the kids' hospital near uh, Ritan Park in Beijing. And the place was always, and that was not a huge hospital, and it was always packed. I mean, it was always packed. That being said, as far as, I mean, clearly from the outside world, the World Health Organization has asked for some clarification about what's going on. Other communities are, are watching perhaps nervously. Uh, what do you make in terms of the threat of this? I mean, of course, we all think back to Wuhan, right? I mean, that's what happens. That's a natural reaction. Well, yeah, if you look at whether the government issue, government response, there seems to be a delay in terms of sharing the information that triggered, right, the, the WHO inquiry, right, this, the, about this matter. But this time, it seems that government was relatively sort of speedy uh, in terms of responding to the WHO uh, request. They share the information, although we're still trying to figure out what kind of information they share, you know, how accurate it is. You know, do they have concrete numbers in terms of the cases and fatalities? You know, so, you know, this seems to be all shrouded mystery, but uh, it appears that this is like uh, not a new pathogen. Uh, overall, I haven't heard anything that is that uh, contradicts what the, the government said on social media. Right. And I guess the WHO has come out to say that it is a common winter infection. A lot of this has to do with the fact that in China, at least, um, some of what we saw in other parts of the world, once the more severe COVID restrictions were lifted, we're now seeing in China later. I mean, it's happening because their restrictions were lifted later. We're seeing some of those winter diseases come back. But earlier this time, though, mind you. No, exactly. Right. This is the uh, the doctors, they're explaining this sort of like result of so-called immunity gap caused by the uh, COVID pandemic because people protect them so well during the pandemic. Those, the restriction measures are lifted. You know, they were exposed to this regular right background uh, pathogens. But unlike other countries, China has this unique, right, this developments that make it uh, 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 even more complicated. Uh, you know, first, there's the problem of the antimicrobial resistance. The study is suggesting like more than 70% of those the MP or macro uh, plasma cases, you know, they were resistant to uh, macrolide antibiotics. Uh, the vaccination rate for the, uh, the leading pathogen causing pneumonia in China, you know, it's again also very low, only 12%. They haven't really? even included that. The, uh, there's the, the PCV vaccine uh, in the uh, uh, national immunization program, you know, and they haven't even imported ISV vaccines. You know, so there are a lot of factors that contribute to the upsurge of the cases in the country. How, how do you make of the communication then in this one? Because clearly a lot of epidemiologists were watching this one very closely. The WHO was relatively quick to ask for new information. They seem to have gotten it relatively quickly. Uh, are we seeing a slight improvement in communication between uh, World Health Organizations and concerned physicians elsewhere and, and Beijing? Well, 
I think there's an improvement, right, at this in the sense that they responded relatively quickly, right, to the WHO request, you know. But again, well, they see this this pattern, right, that that the, the only share after the WHO asked for right. information, right. Uh, so and that uh, you know WHO make that re- made that request public itself is sort of unusual, right. Uh, this move itself, you know, could be interpreted as sort of like a naming and a shaming uh, by the Chinese government. Right. It's interesting, though. It's interesting that that immunity gap plus a lack of vaccinations broadly for, for children would leave them in a situation where they're they're facing because of the uh, of the COVID restrictions that children in China are facing a more sort of a more virulent and more aggressive form of, well, anything right yeah. that's out there. And therefore, yeah. that's what we're seeing now. You know, some of the doctors was to say, well, even though we could say this MP right outbreak happened every three, five or seven years. But this time, they've never seen in terms of scale, you know, so large, you know, so severe. Uh, I think it may have also something to do, has something to do with the fact that the, the children sort of exposed to the multiple pathogens, right, that, that make, uh, you know, this uh, a situation even worse, I think. Right. Well, Yan Zhong, as always, thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. There was a big sentencing hearing in Toronto today. A man who pleaded guilty to the incel-inspired murder of a Toronto uh, massage parlor employee was sentenced to life in prison today with no chance of parole for 10 years. Uh, The man, who cannot be identified because he was 17 at the time of the attack, has also been sentenced to three years behind bars for attempted murder. Uh, He pleaded guilty last year to the first-degree murder uh, in the February 2020 stabbing that killed 24-year-old Ashley Noel Arzaga and seriously injured another woman as well. The court heard he had planned to seek out women to violently attack with a 17-inch sword after he was radicalized with misogynistic views online. The man who can't be identified because he was 17 at the time of the attack has also been sentenced to three years for attempted murder to be served concurrently. He pleaded guilty last year to the February 2020 stabbing that killed 24-year-old Ashley Arzaga and seriously injured another woman. In June, a judge ruled the stabbing was an act of terrorism due to its links to incel ideology, a fringe internet subculture dominated by men who blame women for their lack of sex. This is believed to be the first time in Canada that a court has made a finding of incel-motivated terrorist activity. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Well, joining me now with more on this is Ari Perliger. He's a professor in the School of Criminology and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. He's an associate fellow in the International Center for Counterterrorism. He's author of 2020's American Zealots and an upcoming book about incels and similar groups. And he joins me now. Uh, Ari, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Your just reaction, your reaction to this case, because at least um, from a trial point of view, it was groundbreaking in Canada. The first time uh, a finding of incel motivated terrorist activity in this country, at least. Yes, I think I think it's uh, it's interesting uh, for multiple reasons. First of all, I think it's one of the first time in which a legal uh, authority recognized incels as an extremist group or extremist movement that is engaged in. Ideological violence. I think, for the most part, when people talked about insults, they talked about online communities. Very rarely they addressed the group as a, a security threat. Definitely not as a terrorist threat. And I think, however, that this ruling reflects a growing understanding that insults and similar groups that justify the usage of violence to promote their misogynist ideologies are becoming a social threat. 
that needs to be addressed by the law and by the courts. Right. I, and, I gather it's taken us time to catch up to this, right? Uh, just for listeners who don't know, when you say sort of incel, incels and similar groups, who are you talking about? So we're talking about what we, in general, define as the manosphere. We're talking about multiple groups that are mainly active online uh, that promote various narratives that justify extremist misogyny. So if we're talking, for example, specifically about incels, incel believes that men's access to sexual relationships is a basic human right. They believe that the current construct of society is marginalized, discriminate against men, uh, in many ways is biased towards women. And they also believe that because of those societal new uh, norms and trends, uh, they don't uh, can actually accomplish themselves in the sexual romantic domain. It's, it's a broader ideology that really challenged uh, what they see as a new efforts to reconstruct uh, gender power relations in our society. How does the radicalization then work? Because it's, it's I mean, as, as sort of reprehensible as that is, uh, it, it, it is a, quite a big step to ideological violence and terrorism, right? Yes, but when you learn to believe that society in general is engaging in a systematic oppression of men, when you believe that your grievances are resulting from uh, feminist ideologies and feminist movements, when you believe that all your difficulties, all your grievances, all your challenges in life are stemming from this kind of uh, ideologies and from the overall changes in gender norms in society, uh, you uh, eventually get to the point where you believe that it's your duty or your role or that you are compelled to do something against it, something to protest against it, doing something extreme that will provide more awareness, public awareness to those kind of, of issues. I think it's also in many ways you need, you need to understand that in many of those online communities, those people who engage in violence are becoming some kind of role models. Many of them are being idolized. Many of them are becoming really heroes within those communities. So this is something that provides further motivation and encouragement for other individuals within those communities to try to imitate at their roles. And they truly believe that they are some kind of, a, of an avant-garde that, re, that is rebelling against what they see again as, as the oppression of men in our modern society. How long has it taken authorities? Because, of course, I think a lot of us remember the Elliot Roger case as being the, sort of the first one that caused widespread awareness about what was going on. Certainly the case in Ontario, the horrific case with Alec Manissian was another one of them. And then we have this latest case here. Uh, there have been some flashpoints over time. Have authorities been taking it seriously enough? Have they been catching up to this uh, one fast enough? They do. And I think now we, uh, law enforcement agencies are paying attention to those communities. They're trying to identify potential specific individuals who are more likely to engage in a violent act. But it's very, very difficult, first of all, because the rhetoric and the language within those groups and forums is very toxic. Uh, secondly, because the usage of various uh, rhetoric and narratives focusing on violence against women are very common. And lastly, it's because the great majority of individuals who are members of those communities do not, do not engage in any kind of violent behaviors. So it's very, very difficult and challenging to identify which of those individuals are become, are, may eventually be triggered 
to engage in violence. Most of them uh, do not provide any kind of early, early warnings. I would also say that many of those individuals also are people from uh, different backgrounds, different stages in their lives. I think most people, when they think about insults, they think about people in their teens. That's not the case. We know today that many insults or many members of those communities are in their 20s and 30s and even early 40s. Many of them have careers. Many of them are involved in different uh, public domains. So it's very, very difficult to build a profile of the potential perpetrator, something that, again, as I said before, presents significant challenges for law enforcement. Uh, Ari, I guess one of the big problems here, too, is sort of the quintessential problem when it comes to lone wolf actors, right? I mean, these are it, it is very hard to predict where this might come from. But awareness, awareness, I guess, is the key in this case. And I get the sense, especially after what's happened in Toronto, because there's been a few examples of, of this of there that uh, Canadian American authorities are becoming more and more alert to this. Yes. And I think that when we are discussing potential policies that can address this specific growing threat, we also need to think more broadly about societal trends. I think it's fairly established that there's multiple indicators that men and boys suffering from or are dealing with various challenges. These days, we can see that in the educational systems where consistently data shows that boys are faring less well in schools, in universities, in colleges. Uh, economically, we see that uh, there's also a, a constant decline in men's participations in the workforce. We also know that there's increasing portion of men that are suffering from uh, mental conditions. Men's now live less than what men lived 20 and 30 years ago. The, the uh, decline in the well-being of men drives men into these kind of communities. Uh, it drives men to seek for answers for their struggles, for their challenges, for their dissatisfaction of their lives. And eventually they are being attracted to these kind of extremist forums and ideas and ideologies that provide them a very quick solution and a very uh, simplistic explanations. And this is why we see a dramatic increase in the traffic and in the participation of men in those communities. And the more people are being attracted to those communities, naturally, it's more likely that we'll see more and more lone wolves that are operating and are engaging in violence. So I think, yes, we need to, to deal with the tactical challenges of identifying those specific individuals that are more likely to perpetrate acts of violence. But also, as a society, we need to think how we can make these ideologies less attractive and less appealing to uh, to boys and men. Right, because it sounds so very similar to something like ISIS recruiting. I mean, it is radicalization is what it is. Now, I, I think men should take responsibility for their for their own hate, obviously, and, and their own violent acts. It should be pointed out, I suppose, the, the guilty party in this case apologized to the family and said that, you know, he's now 20, he was 17 then, and this is not to excuse this in any way, shape, or form. But he says if he could travel back in time, he would talk some sense into his former self. I guess that's the problem here is these can be temporary issues, but very, very serious ones. I mean, just the level of hate that you see emerge from these groups, I, I find just shocking. Oh, and, and I think people do not realize how toxic, how violent, how hateful the rhetoric is. And as someone who is monitoring and reviewing those communities, I think that most people are really unaware to the level of hatred that is being manifested in those forums. It's not surprising to find out people who are being exposed 
to these uh, to these online ideologies and forms uh, developing such a high level of hatred i would also say that because we see that more and more men are being exposed to those ideologies online it's also i think worth asking how many cases of intimate partner violence are being occurring because the man was exposed to these kind of ideologies how much a workplace violence or workplace misogyny are being a direct results of men who are being exposed to these ideologies eventually if you are being exposed to those kind of views and ideas you manifest your misogyny in different in different domains in different settings not just necessarily in these kind of acts of violence so i would argue that the impact of those communities go beyond those fairly rare incidents of mass violence. How much does a sentence like this then dissuade, uh, discourage others from following suit? You've already mentioned that those who commit acts of violence are often uh, lionized or, or, or put on a pedestal within these communities. How much does a, does a prison sentence, a very a stiff prison sentence, uh, make a difference, do you think, in, in these situations? I think it's very difficult to assess. I would be very skeptic if that really changed anything. I think many of those individuals who get to the point where they're willing to uh, engage in mass acts of violence feel so frustrated, so hopeless, uh, that they don't really value much their lives. They they cannot imagine that things can be even worse than what they are already. So in many ways, their their violent action is basically the last uh, straw in their efforts to manifest their, their frustration and anger. When you get to that point, I don't think that they necessarily are being uh, deterred by some kind of this kind of verdicts or these kind of, of, of sanctions or punishments. Well, Ari, thank you so much for your time on this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Let's tackle a couple of hot issues that have been going on on Parliament Hill these days. Uh, Pierre Polyev's Conservatives today failed again in a bid to delay the revised Canada-Ukraine free trade deal from coming into force until references to carbon pricing are removed. And this has been an interesting one to watch politically because, as you may know, since the further invasion of Ukraine by Russia nearly two years ago now, Ottawa has produced a pretty common front on all things Ukraine. There's been this sort of universal support within the House of Commons, all parties supporting whatever the government does on the Ukraine front until now. Now, this revised deal was signed by Prime Minister Trudeau and President uh, Zelensky earlier this year. It replaces the original deal, which took effect back in 2017, that was actually done under the Conservatives, or at least partly. Um, The updated agreement includes new chapters on investment and trade and services, amongst other things. Now, all all parties have been united on things involving Ukraine until now. The Conservatives claim the reason they don't want to sign on or don't want to vote for it is because it would impose a carbon tax on Kiev. Here's Pierre Polyev last week defending the decision to vote against the free trade deal. We're against the, uh, putting a carbon tax into any uh, trade agreement. We are in favor of the uh, free trade with Ukraine. In fact, it was conservatives that brought in free trade with Ukraine. Justin Trudeau decided not to go ahead with a trade deal. He decided to go ahead with a carbon tax deal. Okay, now the problem with this is that it's completely untrue. There is no carbon tax in the deal. There is some language around promoting carbon pricing, which you may or may not want to object to because it's kind of a blanket statement. It's in there. There's no obligation here. Both sides, the Ukrainians and the Canadians, have complete sovereignty over 
environmental rules within their own countries. And in fact, um, Ukraine already has something of a price on carbon and it wants to join the European Union. That's a whole other a ball of wax when it comes to issues such as carbon pricing. So why would the conservatives take this single issue, turn what has been a common front on Ukraine into a domestic battle over something which isn't even actually particularly true, right? I mean, some could say, well, you know, the liberals should take it out. The government should take this stuff out. Uh, but why would you? They're the government. They stick with this stuff. This is part of what they do, right? Um, so it's been an interesting one because you have this domestic battle going on. The conservatives are clearly playing politics with it, as are the liberals who've been now accusing the conservatives of abandoning Ukraine and all kinds of stuff. So it's turned into this political football. And ultimately, all Ukraine wants is for this deal to be signed and quickly. So we thought we'd get the the advice of the biggest Ukrainian uh, of the Canadian Ukrainian Canadian Congress. And Ihor Mikloshishin is the CEO. He's been with us before and he joins us again now. Ihor, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I guess just to begin, how important is this free trade deal on the Ukrainian side because clearly they've been pretty vocal about about need, wanting this and wanting to see this revised deal. Yeah, I, I think uh, Ukraine approached Canada from what I've heard from trade officials, uh, even in the midst of the war, that they were very interested in uh, modernizing and expanding the free trade agreement. I think Ukraine has uh, seen, I mean, we know Ukraine has seen a 30% drop in its economy, GDP in the last uh, year and a half. So they're very, uh, very engaged uh, while fighting uh, the Russian invaders. They're very engaged on rebuilding confidence, reinvesting, uh, rebuilding Ukraine. And there was actually a conference in Toronto just last week about that topic that brought hundreds of investors together because there is a huge potential, already strong you know, underlying uh, relationship, but huge potential for the future. Uh, take me into the politics of this a bit, because you understand this. Uh, I've, of course, been following along as this has gone through committee and first reading and so on. Uh, and the Conservatives are voting against it. And I'm uh, interested to know what you think of that. Um, I think that uh, I, I was at committee a couple of weeks ago. None of this was really raised. Uh, we were there for an hour and then an hour with the ambassador. We talked about, you know, as I said, the 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 positive relationship and history, the potential for high tech, for agriculture, for energy, for all sorts of um, all sorts of advantages that these two countries bring to each other. So it is it is a bit of a surprise that, that now that the the position is so strong. You know, obviously we've said officially we're disappointed uh, there, that there isn't unanimous agreement on this. Uh, Ukraine has certainly you know been asking through its embassy and ambassador and through its delegation and president, in fact, you know for Canada to enact the, the free trade agreement and they've negotiated it it's not just that we're we're not it's not a one-sided deal it's it's good for ukraine it's good for canada so um i think we're trying to see where everybody will land on it we have a call to action asking people to call their member of parliament to make their views known uh, we hope that will help to clarify the situation for some mps that might have strong views yeah, I mean, because I've read through it and it's a pretty lengthy document, but there is a section on environment. There is some boilerplate language in there about promoting uh, carbon pricing. There's nothing about a carbon tax. And of course, the you know, for Ukraine, they're looking to get into the European Union. That's a whole other conversation. I mean, this is not I, I was just a bit curious at how I, I've been surprised at how anti the that part of the agreement one the conservatives have been because it doesn't strike me first of all ukraine maintains complete and total sovereignty over it in over the environment or any laws regarding it in, within the deal and it's not that strong language compared to what ukraine will face when it has to negotiate with the eu maybe one day yeah i think you, ukraine has told us that their economic 
future is is with as a member of the European Union, and that that involves harmonizing a lot of their legislation on everything from you know regulations to environment to social policy. So that that is the big path forward for them. They understand that. I mean, they've had a carbon pricing mechanism for I think almost a decade or more. As far as I, I as you read it, as I read it, the, the the agreement is pretty straightforward and doesn't overreach in in those ways that might have been you know kind of alleged. The war in Ukraine continues, and and we see you know bombing. I think this past weekend, seventy five drones were bombing mm-hmm. the capital city of Ukraine. Just yesterday, a village was bombed. I mean, the war, uh, the Russia's invasion continues on an unrelenting scale, and I think that this Kafta agreement and everything Ukraine asks for is part of what they need to to build a, a victory, uh, not just kind of you know hold the line in terms of Russia. So I think I think it's incumbent on the Canadian parliamentarians and us as Canadians to to listen to what they're asking for uh, to help them to win this war is it's our it's in our interest as well as as you know Russia's northern neighbor and as members of the alliance of NATO and other countries that are helping Ukraine it's it's definitely in our interest to to return to some stability here how important is unanimity then? Because, I mean, clearly this will pass because it has support of a majority. Yeah. Um, you know, the conservatives, I think, know that they can object to this one aspect of it because they know it's going to pass anyway. So they can make this about carbon pricing, not about Ukraine. But how important from your perspective is unanimity here? And and what happens when there isn't unanimity? Yeah, I mean, the, the legislation will pass with a majority, most likely, as we've seen in previous votes. I think unanimity on Ukraine has has previously always sent a signal to Ukrainians, you know, to Canadians about the way that our parliament speaks with one voice or thinks with one voice, you know, when it comes to standing with Ukraine and what that means. Uh, it's more symbolic than anything, but I, I think it is important. And I think it sends signals to the rest of the world and to Russia about where uh, particular parliaments are at in terms of how we see it internationally, right? That that internationally, um, different parliaments have had different moments of, of debate. I suppose that then leads to the opposite accusation that somehow this is about losing support for Ukraine. No. And then and, and then honestly, I mean, I've, I've dealt with the conservatives for years. They've been including after Maidan. We're on the 10th year anniversary of Euromaidan now. And they've always been very firm backers of Ukraine. I think this is domestic politics. Uh, and it might be unfortunate, but I think there, all of a sudden there's a lot of politics flowing around on this one. And that in itself is a bit unfortunate. But I think the conservatives have always been pretty staunch supporters of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's important to think about the big picture, as you said, that our, our our long-term big picture relationship with Ukraine, especially, as I said, if there is this, as soon as the war ends, there is this huge investment opportunity to help rebuild and restructure. Um, you know, in the meantime, we have to we have to deal with the the asks of Ukraine as as they come. And I think this is this is a, a, a strong one of them. Uh, but I think that, as you said, there is a there is a, a long-standing relationship and I, I, that will continue. And and I think in the big picture, you know, Canada's support on all fronts is essential to Ukraine winning the war. So um, we'll we'll stay tuned to see what what asks come next. Right. But I guess in the meantime, just from, from your organization, the, the, the ask is to stop playing politics with this. Yeah, I, I think when we were at committee, none of these none of these issues came up. And, um, you know, we've we've seen it very clearly said by the Ukrainian government that they 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 want this deal. They've negotiated this deal. They don't uh, have any interest in, in a delay. Uh, and, you know, part of their plan to rebuild the economy is to build trade relationships like this. So we're asking MPs to, you know, to look at it, to revisit it 
to see, as you said, what is the language in the bill actually say and um, to make sure that there's no um, further delay here. Ihor, as always, thank you. Thanks very much. When Ottawa ponies up a ton of money to bring in uh, an, an organization or bring in a project such as a huge EV battery factory in a place like Windsor owned by a company like Stellantis, the expectation, I think, is that most of the jobs, if not all the jobs, will be Canadian, right? Uh, that's not what's happened, okay? They're going to bring in about 900 foreign workers, mainly from South Korea and Japan, to help set up specialized machinery. Uh, now, keep in mind, again, the project is receiving about $15 billion in subsidies. So there are questions as to why that money would appear to be going to pay workers from other countries. It's led to some pretty heated exchanges in the House of Commons. There's lots of stuff about so on social media these days. Now, uh, the company itself, Nexstar, says it will hire about 2,500 Canadians full-time once the facility is completed. Is that good enough? Joining me now is Dave Forte. He's chair of Automate Canada. He's also president of Data Realm. Uh, they work within automation within industry. Uh, and he's in Windsor. Dave, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Ben. How are you Maybe doing? Just, good, good. Maybe just, a, I mean, I know this is a hot topic in Windsor, of course, because it's a big deal. It's a big investment in the, in the community. Maybe just a bit about what Automate does so listeners know uh, what, what your involvement in a project like this would be, or at least what your interest in a project like this would be. Uh, well, I guess I can answer that from uh, two perspectives. So um, uh, from Automate Canada's perspective, Automate Canada is an association of automation companies. Um, and what that means is uh, companies that build machines, design machines, program machines, uh, or program vision systems that go on machines or, or develop software that is used to run factories or machines. So it's all about manufacturing and it's all about the, the, uh, the, you know, the ground floor level development of machinery and automation that runs these factories. And the other perspective is my own company, Data Realm, we're a controls system integration company. And what that means is we, uh, from an electrical and software point of view, we design software and electrical systems on the automation that runs in the factories. So walk me through this Nexstar Stellantis project, because it sounds comp. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's cutting edge. Uh, so just how complex is this going to be? And and we can talk about what that necessitates in terms of in terms of of, uh, of workforce after. Uh, okay, um, I mean, I guess I should preface by saying you know we don't know the exact machine and processes that are going on because that's not something that we'd be privy to or anybody right. would be for that matter. That's a LG Stellantis um, you know proprietary information. Uh, that again, only they would know. Even if I knew, I wouldn't wouldn't know the whole thing. It's it's a big plant. Um, I drive by it every day. It's it's quite large, and um, and you know the the main thing they're doing there is building battery cells. So uh, a battery cell is as you know everybody has little you know AA batteries and C C and D batteries and all that sort of thing. So if you were to cut one of those open and look inside, well, that's what they're making, right? They're, they're making something like that. And um, those batteries are, are comprised of um, rolls of, of different types of metal, usually aluminum and copper, with a, a substrate of some kind on each one or both sides of each of the metals. One's a cathode, one's an anode, and they wrap them together with a separator, Put some electrolyte in there. I'm just I'm making it very simple, and and 
I guess we'll uh, have a battery. <laughs> right. I mean, yes. I mean, complicated. Yes. I mean, in, in a nutshell, that's exactly it. Now, a lot has been made over the fact that, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the subsidies paid to bring this in. And we know what, that there's a lot going on in the subsidy race these days when it comes to getting these sorts of plants. <clears throat> sure. But tell me, tell me a bit about, about the, this, the kerfuffle, we'll call it, over bringing in foreign workers, because you've explained it in a way that I thought was, was, was interesting in, in that this is often the case because, as you mentioned, a lot of the technology used to make these, um, components is, you know, it, belongs to there there is a there is a proprietary aspect to this and therefore they bring in their own workers to build the stuff uh okay let's let's i'm not sure i'm not sure quite what you said there but you said they they don't bring their builders to to build the stuff they bring in their workers to set up the machines and and get them what we call run off or 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 uh factory acceptance tested or site acceptance tested and uh, these are pretty normal practices in the industry where you sell machines because, you know, um, if you make a machine that's that you've been making for years, uh, typically only you know how to how how you designed it. Only you know how to best run it off. Only you know how to get it running uh, up to speed, which is you know part of your contract when you when you sell that machine to the to the end user. Right. Um, so. If that was you, you know, selling a, some kind of a device that you made, you would want to be sure that it's working up and properly in the time frame you promised, when you promised, uh, so that you get paid, right? Right. And so you're not surprised in this case that that these workers are being brought in uh, by the company. In other words, to just to handle that aspect of, mm-hmm. of, of the of the construction here. Yeah. So you mentioned that I did another interview. So yeah. So I interviewed. I was interviewed with, by the Windsor Star about a week ago, I guess, roughly, maybe maybe a little more than a week. And yeah, I, I did talk about some of this. Um, so am I surprised? No. That, again, that's just I'm in the business of you know sell of selling. Well, in our case, selling the control systems that run machines, right? Um, but um, that's pretty normal practice in, in my world. So it's nothing I've never. It's something I, I'm used to, I guess you could say. Right, and and you mentioned that this is this is sort of standard practice, and it, this doesn't just apply to this industry or to this company or to this country. It, it, just about everybody does this in one way, shape, or shape or form when they're putting a new factory somewhere else. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Let me just give you as a simple example I just thought of. If you're buying a, a brand new kitchen, right, um, and then the kitchen person you bought the kitchen room, of course, you're going to have them install it and they're responsible for getting everything working, right? Could you imagine if the kitchen, you know, the person you bought the kitchen from dropped it off in your front door and said, hey, uh, I'm not putting it together. You got to do it yourself. It'd be, uh, it'd be a bit of an issue, right? <laughs> right. Indeed. So, <laughs> I, but, there, but there has been a backlash, as you well know, from where you are. There's been this idea that, you know, because there's government funding going into this, that it should be locals being hired. And and I'm just, I guess a lot of the questions have been, it's become a very either or conversation, right? That you, we should be training locals to do the work that obviously uh, this LG feels more comfortable having its own people well, do because they built okay. the stuff. Okay. Let's, let's, let's just rephrase that just a little bit. Um so absolutely, LG Stellantis the, needs to have the people here locally in Windsor learn how to run those machines, learn how to operate them, learn how to fix them. There's no doubt about that. That has to happen. And I'm just saying I couldn't even imagine that not happening because yes. at no. some point, uh, the people who built these machines are going to be leaving town 
And when they leave town, uh, our local people better know how to run them and better know how to fix them <laughs> because yeah. you can be pretty sure they're not going to be flying back from Korea every time there's a little problem, right? So we have to, you know, that is just, I would think, common business sense to make sure that your employees, your engineers, your techs are trained in, into, into you know, the, the maintenance of the machine, preventive maintenance of the machine, uh, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the even the parts of the design, parts of programming, replacing broken, maybe common parts. That's all got to be stuff that is known locally. Right. Right. Well, Dave, thanks so much for 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 your insight on this. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. No, you're welcome. Thanks, Ben. What kind of camper are you? Are you one of those sort of extreme day after day after day, load yourself down, um, uncomfortable, no sort of fancy campsite kind of people or kind of person? Or are you one of those people who sort of parks the car? gets out, goes about uh, 150 feet, finds a nice camp spot, sets up camp, and stays there. Um, when I was young, of course, I used to go to camp, so I used to have to do the former, not really, but kind of the former. And now I'm definitely in the latter, in the latter group. Um, not my next guest, though. Anything but. Anything but. The very opposite of a glamper is my next guest. Um, his latest book is about a 3,400-kilometer odyssey from his home on Lake Erie to the Arctic, in a canoe and on foot only, uh, all prompted by a single moment. Now, author and adventurer Adam Schultz is no stranger to the wilderness. He explored the Arctic by canoe already. He created a book called A History of Canada in Ted Maps, which you may know. Uh, But this was a bit different because, I mean, by his standards, it was done somewhat on a whim. Uh, What caught his eye looking at his porch window one spring morning back in 2022 was a peregrine falcon flying across uh, the neighboring fields near his home in Lake Erie. Now, that in of itself is not that rare. The area is well known uh, for for birds and so forth, especially on the migratory path, right? Uh, Including falcons, by the way, on their long journey to nest in the Arctic mountains. But this time, Schultz decided to follow, not literally, but just about taking his backpack and his canoe and setting off from home, mind you, from home on Lake Erie to make that 3,400-kilometer trip uh, over about three months, all by canoe and by foot. It took him through the Great Lakes, along the St. Lawrence, into the wilderness of Labrador, and much more. He fought off swarms of black flies, found places to camp in and around Toronto and Montreal, fought off nine storms, including a tornado in Quebec, and it all took him three months and le- three months less a day, I should say. And he documents the whole thing in his new book called Where the Falcon Flies, which is a much, as much about his journey, really, what he saw, who he met along the way, as it is about arriving at his destination. And adventurer and author Adam Schultz joins me now. Adam, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. What a remarkable journey. <laughs> what a remarkable journey. The map of it is, yeah. Um, how did this begin? I gather you were sort of just observing yeah, I was just in my living room in our house uh, right near Lake Erie in southern Ontario, and I happened to look out, and I saw a peregrine falcon. And uh, peregrine falcons, if you've ever seen one, you're not likely to forget it. They're one of the most majestic of all birds. Uh, where we live in Norfolk County, right near Long Point, is a bit of a birding hotspot. Uh, in April and May, you can see over 400 different species of birds there. Uh, but when I saw that peregrine falcon, it was like a light bulb went on over my head, and I thought, you know, those falcons, they migrate thousands of kilometers every spring from southern Canada to the Arctic where they'll make their nests. And I thought, you know, why not get my canoe and my backpack and follow that falcon from our front 
door to the Arctic. Right. Which which is a, a journey with many varied obstacles in the way, because I've been looking at your photos. So you begin, and I guess the first bit of it is mostly just trying to navigate what is one of the busiest and perhaps most touristy parts of the parts of the world when it comes to water. Well, yes, I had to get through Lake Erie, which took about a week. But once I got through Lake Erie, then I went down the Niagara River, uh, which took me straight to Niagara Falls. And then I paddled as close as I could get to the brink. And then I portaged around the falls. And Niagara Falls can certainly be busy. Although, luckily, I started in April. This was the ice melted on Lake Erie. So it wasn't nearly as busy as it would have been in July or say. Right. What was it like when you were in uh, in Niagara to do that? So, that, so, I mean, that's really just the beginning of the journey, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole the whole route from my doorstep to the Arctic was around 3,400 kilometers, which I forecasted beforehand would take me anywhere from three to four months to do, uh, which is why I started right in April. I thought, you know, this will give me plenty of time to get to the Arctic before winter hits. The route was, as you said, varied. It was everything from paddling through some of the biggest urban areas of Canada, like Toronto and Montreal, but also the deepest wilderness uh, in northern Quebec, in Labrador, Arctic mountains. It was a little bit of everything. So, so you you get through Niagara, and then of course you have to kind of navigate the St. Lawrence Seaway. I mean, you're kind of in in one of the busier parts of North America at this point. Uh, but but you're finding spots to stop and camp along the way. Well, that's the great thing about Canada. I mean, you can be even on the doorstep of our biggest cities like Toronto and Montreal, but you will still find wild spots. I was astonished by how much green space there still is within the city limits of Toronto. Uh, the Lake Ontario waterfront from about Scarborough over, uh, for kilometer after kilometer of paddling along there, it's completely wild. And then you have rich Carolinian forest along the shore there. So especially early in the year when I was doing my journey, uh, there's hardly any boats in the water. So you had to almost remind yourself that you're still within the city limits of Canada's biggest city in some of those stretches. And around Montreal, too, there's this astonishing amount of uh, green space still around the city. So I didn't really have, for the most part, that hard a time. Uh, finding spots to put up my tent each night. How was the paddling at that time of year? Because it can be a little, I mean, April can be a tough, April and early May aren't exactly a summer in, Montreal, in, in, in southern Canada yet either. No, it was uh, unseasonably cold last year. This was 2022. I left on April 24th. And for the first month or so, temperatures with the wind chill were often below freezing. It was unusually wet, lots of rain. But I had thought beforehand, you know, what kind of gear do I want to wear while I'm doing this? So I had merino wool under armor, and I had a warm jacket, hood up, and uh, some Gore-Tex pants. Uh, so that made things tolerable, and I just, I, I was like, I'm not taking any days off. This is seven days a week, uh, month in and month out of, of traveling. Uh, no breaks, no stops that are unnecessary, and I figured, you know, paddling will keep me warm. So that was my strategy. Yeah, seven days a week. I guess there's no point in stopping. I mean, what are you going to do exactly? You know, you're you know you're not going to go catch a show, right? So you might as well just keep going. No, uh, yeah, I'm kind of like an athlete. You know, when I'm in the zone, I don't want to get out of it. So once I set off on a long journey, and I've done other long canoe journeys before this one. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I canoed alone across the Arctic. But yeah, once I start going, then my tent is like my five star hotel, and I don't want to be anywhere else. I always say I sleep better in my tent than I do in my bed, anyways. And uh, every day was varied, as you mentioned. So there were always different challenges from navigating whitewater rapids to battling storms on the Great Lakes to getting around hydro dams uh, to dealing with commercial shipping traffic, figuring out a place to camp, uh, repairing some of my gear, lots of history along the route as well. I mean, I was traveling along some of the most historic places in Canada, 
Um, I'd see vestiges of New France, like old windmills along the St. Lawrence River. So every day was full of interest and excitement. And, of course, I was keeping an eye out for falcons as well as other Arctic birds that migrate in the spring. So, yeah, I didn't see any point in, in taking a rest day. There were times when, because of uh, storms, I had a tornado in Quebec, as well as some high winds where it was impossible to paddle. And then I would make up for last, <laughs> the lost sleep uh, in those cases uh, where I might stay an extra few hours in my tent in some woods or something like that. But, uh, yeah, that was basically my mindset, which is just keep going until you get to the Arctic. Yeah, I mean the 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 route you take. Thinking of having read about your trip through the Arctic, I always thought, well, that that would be more grueling. But but looking at where you had to go through this one, uh, those you tackled some some mighty waterways through it as well. And and I forgot about the tornado. Of course, there was that tornado in Quebec last uh, in the summer of twenty twenty two. Did you have to st- do you stop and resupply as you go, or do you? I mean, obviously, but how do you do that? Well, I tried to keep all my logistics to an absolute minimum. I wanted to travel as light as possible. And this expedition was much more spontaneous and off the cuff uh, than a lot of my past ones, which took years of careful planning and meticulous preparation. So I didn't really have any resupplies, but I did have my wife, Alexandria. Before I left, I filled up some boxes with extra socks and granola bars as well as maps. And then I said, I've written out post offices on these boxes, mail them. Canada Post actually has something called Flex Delivery. It's free. Anyone can sign up for it. And if you sign up for it, they'll give you a serial number. And that serial number allows you to mail boxes up to 50 pounds maximum to any post office in the country, and they'll hold it for up to a month, I believe, at no charge for you. Um, so I'd looked at the map and saw a couple of post offices along my route in Quebec, and I'd be like, okay, it's probably going to take me about a month to get to Cap Sante. That's about 50 kilometers uh, west of Quebec City. And there's a post office right by the water there, so that's where one of the places I mailed my box of provisions to. And there was another one in Labrador, and that's basically how I resupplied, but even with those resupplies and whatever food I could pick up around the way and fish I could catch and berries and roots and mushrooms, I was still pretty hungry the whole time. At this point, you're, you're, making, you're making pretty good time, right? Have you seen any falcons at this point, or are they kind of taken in a more direct route, I suspect? Well, actually, a lot of the peregrine falcons, I mean, because they're one of the most fascinating birds in the world, uh, they've been studied extensively, and including their migration routes. I think some of them have even been outfitted with uh, radio transmitters. Right. And the surprising thing is, is my route, my canoe route, uh, mimicked the route of the falcon pretty closely. I mean, different falcons take different paths north. They can fly, so they're not bound by the same geographical limitations that I am. But a lot of these falcons, they do, in fact, migrate from Lake Erie. Uh, they follow sort of the, the St. Lawrence Seaway. And then when they get past Quebec City around Tadoussac, a lot of them make an abrupt turn north for the Arctic, and they'll fly all the way up to the Torngat Mountains um, at the top of the map of Canada, which is where I was heading. So my route from the ground, of course, uh, it did follow the path of the falcon quite closely. I didn't see many falcons, though, because um, other than the first day when I spotted one and the end of my route when I set off on foot into the mountains to search for their nests, I didn't have a lot of time to actually sit around and bird watch, which is what you'd want to do if you're looking for falcons. And on top of that, I was like record-breaking amounts of rain. There was one stretch of 34 days, I remember, it rained 30 of them. And uh, overcast, rainy skies is not good for bird watching either. Um, but there are places where falcons are known to uh, hunt and land at all along that route. And whenever I would pass one of those, I would keep an eye out. But uh, I saw many, many bird species, including many Arctic species, like sandhill cranes and snow geese and tundra swans, but I didn't actually see any falcons other than on day one and the very end. 
amazing though that you you talked about the storms that you saw nine storms including one tornado that must at some point you must feel like you're getting bad weather luck i mean that's just that it's 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 never i mean i've been on canoe trips nothing you know uh, a walk in the park compared to that but but uh but yeah it's always tougher when it when it rains it did it did at times seem like i didn't have much luck with the weather gods but on the other hand i always have a glass half full optimistic perspective so yeah. i tell myself well it's record-breaking amounts of rain, which is requiring a lot of bailing just to keep my canoe afloat. I had to cut an iced tea container in half that I found along a riverbank and use that as a baler just to keep the water out. But I said, you know, at least uh, at least I don't have to worry about forest fires. Uh, Environment Canada kept issuing, like, uh, rainfall warning amounts for Labrador and eastern Quebec. Uh, so I tried to make the most of it. There were some bright sides to it. It was There were so many torrential downpours that when I was feeling parched, I would sometimes just set up my tent at night and put my cooking pot outside the tent and it would collect the rainwater off the tent fly and then like five minutes I'd have a full cup of water and be like, this is perfect, I don't have to purify it, drink this right in my tent, it feels like luxurious, like I'm at a resort now. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in Quebec, so I spent some time out in those woods. The estimate of how many black fly bites you got was infinite, <laughs> infinite black Yes, flies. yeah. Starting in April meant that I was uh, going to be traveling in some major waterways at the height of black fly season at the end of May and through June. So that was that was relentless. There's no real way to put a positive spin on that one. I would tell myself when the bugs were bad, at least it meant the wind was light. So, you know, no headwind slowing me down. But that was just about the only optimistic take I could come up with with the black flies. Uh, you can't get too, uh, too glass half full when it, come, when it comes to the black flies. How, do you just deal with it? Do you just sort of accept the fact you're going to get bitten and just live with it? You don't, you don't sort of slather? You, do you try to fend them off or is it just part of the process it's essentially just part of the process i do wear a mesh bug net i always carry an extra mesh bug net two of them but uh mesh bug nets if you've ever worn them they're not 100 percent. and as you sweat more and as, as the net presses against your skin of course with the sweat uh, the bugs bite through it and black flies are so tiny you know much much tinier than a mosquito they can actually crawl through those nets and get up under them no matter how hard you try to avoid that and, and when you're bushwhacking in a place with no trails of course, your nets are going to get uh, torn up after a while, especially in like dense black spruce with a lot of sharp branches. Now, the thing about DEET, uh, I carry DEET for when it's really bad, but if you read, the, if you read any product, the, the label on the back, it says, make sure you wash this off when you come back inside with soap and water like at the end of the day. And for me, I was like, oh, I'm going to go three months without showering or washing. So for the DEET to be effective, I would have had to coat myself in it about every 20 minutes because you sweat it off and it wears off quickly especially when you're the only human around for miles. So I'd be like, uh, I can't really wash this off with soap. Uh, no. So I only wore that on a couple of occasions when it was like absolutely critical. The bugs were thick as storm clouds around me. I, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Uh, and you went, you went 14 days without seeing another soul at one point, right? So you had went on long stretches where you, you didn't see anyone. Yes. I mean, that's not terribly long by some of the standards no. of my past journeys where I've gone months, but... I mean, in an age of 2023 where people usually don't go more than five minutes without checking their phone, eight billion people in the world and counting, yeah, to go two weeks without even seeing another soul is still a very special thing. Uh, if you're like me and that's your cup of tea, it's actually relaxing uh, being away from the world and not knowing what's going on in it. But that's like deep in the, the back country of Labrador and Nunavik, uh, where you can still wander for hundreds of miles and not come across a single road or trail or even another living soul. I said two weeks without seeing a person, but that was only interrupted, I might add, by like a five-minute conversation. 
with someone I came across and then back into pure solitude again. Canadian author and adventurer Adam Schultz is with us. We're talking about his new book called Where the Falcon Flies. Uh, it documents his 3,400-kilometer odyssey from his doorstep in uh, on Lake Erie all the way to the Arctic to uh, follow the migration route of the Peregrine Falcon. We've sort of made it to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, as far as I can tell. You mentioned already that there's just a ton of history along what you saw. You must have seen some pretty remarkable stuff. And from your vantage point, a really cool way to see it as well, to see it from the water. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, in the modern world, in the 21st century, all our lives move at such fast hectic paces, you know, driving around in our cars or flying in airplanes that we uh, pass by places uh, so quickly we never even really notice they're there. But that's one of the great things about traveling under your own power, whether you're hiking or paddling a canoe, uh, everything slows, it's like time slows down and you observe all sorts of things in the natural world and the human world around you that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Now, if I ever drive through like uh, or over the Burlington Skyway, I can't look at it in the same light now that I've seen it from the waterline paddling my canoe and spending the night camping under there, and same with Quebec and every other part of my route, uh, traveling slowly. I mean, I, I observed not only a lot of wildlife and, and amazing forests, ancient trees and rocks, uh, but a lot of history, as, as you alluded to. Um, I would see the ruins of old forts from centuries past, testifying to the wars, old ruin, ruins of, of windmills, some of them the oldest windmills in Canada, dating back to the 1600s, and you know, old churches and old cemeteries where the the headstones have faded away. Shipwrecks, many shipwrecks on the St. Lawrence, on the Gulf, on uh, the Great Lakes, and all kinds of history like that, which I tried to weave into the story of my book as well. I didn't want it mm-hmm. just to be a story of my own personal journey, but I wanted to sort of say, you know, this is, if you were to travel this route or redo this canoe trip, uh, this is what you would see at this spot. Yeah. And you do, I mean, and then you head into sort of the really remote part of the trip as you get up into around Labrador and, and, and around on your way to Kanjik Suluduak. Um, and you encounter some incredible stuff and you take a bit of a, a side trip as well to the Turingat Mountains. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. What was that like? Because the images of them, I mean, if you see them on a map, they, they, it's so remote looking, but, but I, they look from the images. I mean, they're just spectacular. Oh, yeah, the Torngat Mountains are the most spectacular of all Arctic mountains. I mean, they look like something out of another world. I always, they always remind me of Lord of the Rings or something, like something that doesn't right. belong in, uh, in the real world. And they're as remote and isolated as it gets. There's no settlement in the Torngat Mountains. And they're surprisingly tall mountains. Like, we associate big high peaks with western Canada, but the Torngats are the, are the highest mountains in mainland eastern Canada. Uh, you have to go a long way before you find any mountains higher than them. And that's where the falcons fly, and many of the peregrines anyway. They fly to the Torngats where they make their nests on sheer cliffs where nothing could possibly disturb the eggs. And that was the whole motivation of my journey. So when I got to the foothills of the Torngats, I secured my canoe as well as I could. I tied it up to a, a black spruce. I thought, you know, water levels are already high, but I don't want there to be like a rainstorm and the river to rise on me. So I tied it to a tree, lashed it down with some rope, and then I took all the remaining food I still had with me, which wasn't much, just a handful of granola bars, and uh, my backpack. And then I set off with my camera into the mountains. And, of course, there's no trails or paths to follow, but this is in the Arctic, so it's relatively easy to navigate because there's no forest anymore to block your view. So you can see yeah. for miles. Very long days, um, which is good for searching for falcons. And uh, normally when it comes to falcons, I had seen them before in the Arctic when I did my journey across, uh, they find you before you find them. You can hear them. They're raspy, 
sort of shrieks ring out. And I went into the areas that seemed most promising with sheer cliffs because that's what they like to nest on. Um, so whenever I'd find a spot, I'd climb up the mountain as high as I could get before it got too steep and then just sit there with my camera and uh, scan all the cliffs and listen for any falcons. And you found them? Yes, I did. Yeah, it would have been very disappointing if I didn't, <laughs> but uh, that's when you do something philosophical, and it's like, oh, it's not the end point, it's the journey that matters, but uh, luckily, no, I didn't have to put a philosophical spin on it because I did find them. Yeah. I mean, the, just to, to watch the places you went, I know you've, I mean, clearly the Arctic journey was an incredible one. What stood out to you about this one? Because you said you did do it a bit off, the, you did do it kind of off the cuff, you didn't spend ages planning for it, you just kind of went, um, and I'm sure that has both upsides and downsides. There were, there were a couple of things I really um, took away from this journey uh, that looking back on, I, I uh, appreciated the most. One of which is Canada is truly an incredible country. Uh, that was the most astonishing thing to me, is that even traveling through southern Canada, through southern Ontario, southern Quebec, the two most densely populated parts of Canada, uh, I could still easily find places to camp. You know, There's not too many countries in the world where you could paddle like this and camp outside major cities or even within the city limits, and, and feel this this level of solitude. Now, part of that had to do with traveling early in the year before most people are out in their boats. Um, usually, people don't put their boats in the water until, like, the May long weekend. And this was, I started in April, and part of it also had to do with the unseasonably cold temperatures and lots of rain. But nevertheless, uh, that, to me, was uh, all part of the thrill of doing this journey and seeing, like, you know, still big stretches of Lake Ontario and Lake Erie that are undeveloped. I remember paddling when I was getting out past Port Hope and thinking parts of Lake Ontario there uh, almost reminded me of Lake Superior where the water was crystal clear. You have these ancient cedar forests and just secluded cove after secluded cove with not even a road or a house in sight. So exploring those connections between uh, the remoteness and the wildness of the Arctic uh, with wild places that still exist in southern Canada and all the little ties that bind them together uh, the connections between the different landscapes was a huge part of the appeal of the journey and which I've tried to capture in my book. And the other part was something quite different, and this was something that was new to me, is that, as you would imagine, doing the journey that I did, I ended up crossing paths with many strangers, perfect strangers, uh, from all walks of life. I tried to keep a record of all that in my journal every day, write it down in my tent, but I, and by the end of the journey, I, wrote, I looked at my journal and I had over 150 different strangers I crossed paths with. And I can tell you in all honesty... Uh, from the biggest cities to the smallest towns, from Lake Erie to the Arctic, every single one of those people, without exception, showed me nothing but kindness and uh, willingness to help a perfect stranger. And that, to me, was maybe the most rewarding aspect of the journey of all. Yeah, I mean, looking at where you went, um, and considering the point was to try and find the falcons which you knew would be in a remote place it is remarkable and, and just reading like flipping through looking through the book and the, the way you describe that because you know lake ontario you think of it like there's the train whizzing by there's cities there's towns there's the 401 one of the busiest highways in north america just up the road i mean it's you're right in the center of everything and yet you can still find that tranquility as well which is which is amazing and and to be to uh to renew your faith in the human spirit even, even though you spent many days alone is is pretty cool as well bear encounters there's always I mean, there must have been a few tough times. You, you mentioned the weather already. Plus, you had the bear encounters, which I know you're used to. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, lots of black bears along my route, and I wasn't overly worried about the black bears, although at the same time, you don't want to be too cavalier. I mean, they can't weigh like six or 700 pounds. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I have encountered many black bears, so I thought, you know, for the most part, if I make noise, they'll leave me alone. 
I was a little more worried about polar bears at the end part of my journey because there would be polar bears on Ngava Bay, the Arctic Ocean. And that's partly what motivated me to push on as hard as I could. I mean, some days, my longest day was 17 hours. I was almost falling asleep in the canoe. And that was right at the start on Lake Ontario. I did a 17-hour day just because the conditions were ideal. There was nowhere to camp anyways. That shoreline was all developed, so I had to push on. There was moonlight, so I could paddle by the light of the moon. But the reason I did that was polar bears. Even on Lake Ontario, even in southern Ontario, polar bears were never far from my mind. And I knew, well, my best chance of staying safe is to get to the Arctic uh, before the end of summer because early in the year, most of those polar bears will be well-fed and they'll be offshore on the ice, so I should be relatively safe. Whereas if I'm slower and I don't get to the Arctic until August, that's going to be much more dangerous. A lot of those polar bears, the ice will have melted, and now they're going to be on the mainland just sitting there all hungry waiting for me to come down in my canoe. I was kind of hoping that by that point I'd be skin and bones. I'd be so hungry they'd think he's not even worth it. He's not even an appetizer. But still, I didn't want to leave anything to chance. So I was pushing on hard to avoid most of the polar bears at the end. Yeah, you didn't eat much on this trip, did you, Adam, just by the sounds of it? No. I mean, if I mean, on the other hand, if you ate my diet under like normal circumstances and civilization, I'm sure you would. Uh, it would not be healthy. Right. You're, you're, you're burning a lot of, of calories. Yeah. Yeah, but you're, you're just burning enormous amounts of calories. It's incredible how much calories a person will burn through on one of these uh, wilderness journeys. You're burning calories almost 24 hours a day, even in your sleep inside your sleeping bag. You're burning calories just by sleeping outside in cold temperatures on a cold ground because uh, your body has to burn extra energy just to stay warm. And every, everything takes energy, right? When you're traveling alone, um, there's no division of labor. You can't tell one person, you know, you go gather the water, uh, you go gather ch- uh, firewood, and I'll put up the tent. You have to do everything. Um, so there's always a task to be done. And, of course, this isn't like paddling in a Gonquin Park or something where you have a gorgeous campsite around every bend. Uh, many of these places in northern Quebec, Labrador, the Arctic, it's very difficult to make a campsite. The shoreline might be cliffs, it might be steep slopes, there might be thickets of alders. Um, so sometimes you have to actually carry your stuff a considerable ways inland. Uh, when I was along the coast and there's tidal tides, you'd have to go inland above the high tide mark. <laughs> the day would usually end after 12 hours of paddling with a strenuous portage, carrying everything through mud flats or up a cliff to make a campsite. Uh, so as you can imagine, yeah, you're constantly hungry. You're always burning calories doing that sort of thing. How did you get back? I mean, I, I know how you got back, but that, that must have been an interesting journey as well. Well, I when I started my journey way back in April, I pulled out my map of Canada, and I thought, okay, starting right here from Long Point on Lake Erie, uh, where can I end up? The Torngats, as I said, are uninhabited, so I don't want to end there. Uh, I have to end in some community, and I was looking on the coast of Ungava Bay for an Inuit community that I would be able to paddle to in my canoe, knowing that if I could get to that little outpost, then there should be a flight I can catch uh, from there back. Maybe not a direct flight. I might have to wait around for a week or so, uh, but that's at least an end point. So that was my goal. And there is a little tiny Inuit community, population about eight, 900, Kangaroo Sulujuak on yep. Ungava Bay. So that's where I paddled to. And then I ended up spending a week there. Uh, which was, again, another uh, a rewarding experience before I flew uh, west to Kujuak and then from there south to Montreal. Well, Adam, congratulations on yet another journey. I look forward to hearing about the next one, uh, but uh, great that you're back, and uh, congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure.